0: Are you ready to survive in the wasteland? Let's find out when we talk Fallout this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast.
1: So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here?
0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode number 26 of the Upper Memory Block Podcast. As usual, I'm your host Joe and I am back once again as I have been for an entire year. Yes, it is the first anniversary of the podcast this episode. Uh, So I'm back as I have been to talk about a really cool game series from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. So first, I guess I should talk a little bit about uh, about the first anniversary. I'm not going to do a big thing. I'm not doing anything really special. We're just going to talk about a cool game as I usually do. But I just want to take this uh, this opportunity to thank everyone who's been listening, you know, even from uh, from episode zero back on March 29th, 2012. You guys put up with me for a whole year. The first few episodes where uh, I know I was a little more halting, a little more... Uh, hesitant as i was just now and uh you know i i know i said things i, I said you know a lot and, and other things like that but you guys put up with me and and i'm very happy i'm very thankful for uh, everyone who's been around from the beginning and people who are just picking up the show you know in the past couple of months and even people who just started listening today um you know i just uh, i guess a year ago i just had this crazy little idea to uh or as i like to call it a dumb idea to uh to do a show about uh about old PC games because that's something I really love. Um, honestly, I guess I started the show right after this whole Kickstarter thing happened with Double Fine Adventure. But uh, frankly, I guess I wasn't really up on it. I know the Larry Kickstarter was kind of the first one that I heard about, and um, yeah, I don't know if, if that was kind of the the Double Fine thing. I had kind of heard about it in the past or in passing, and I hadn't really paid attention, and it was in the back of my mind, but. Um, you know, I just uh, I guess I started the show at the right time. people you guys all seem to be enjoying it. I'm having a great time doing it. I wish I could do it more than every two weeks or more often than every two weeks, but uh, sadly my my lifestyle, if you want to call it, doesn't really uh, doesn't really permit that, but uh, I'm I'm glad to still be here after a year and I hope to be here for another year and another year after that. and um, just keep talking about great games until there's no more great games to talk about. but I don't think that's gonna be possible. So enough about that. Let's get on to the news, because um, there's quite a bit of it, and sadly not all of it is, uh, is positive. So let's get rolling. Uh, in the news, we have a few Kickstarters to cover uh, off the bat. First, not a game project, but a UK-based movie project. Uh, the film is called From Bedrooms to Billions. It's a documentary covering the origins of the UK gaming industry. The film will be replete with amazing interviews from iconic figures uh, from within the UK gaming scene, including Peter Molyneux, David Brabin, uh, and other well-known British designers, musicians, game journalists, and and, and much, much more. This seems like it'll be a really great insight into the early UK gaming scene, and I'm looking very forward to it. They've blown past their 18,000-pound goal with uh, 22 days remaining in the campaign, but if you do want to check it out, I will, as usual, link uh, the campaign in the show notes. Next, we have a little bit of information on the game that uh, kick-started, I guess we could say, the uh, the Kickstarter revolution. Tim Schaefer's Double Fine Adventure finally has a real name. It was announced last week, I believe it was, uh, or maybe it was two weeks ago now, at PAX East that... Uh, His game, Double Fine Adventure, will actually be called Broken Age. Uh, The description from Broken Age's new site states, Broken Age is a point-and-click adventure telling the stories of a young boy and girl leading parallel lives. The girl has been chosen by her village to be sacrificed to a terrible monster, but she decides to fight back. Meanwhile, a boy on a spaceship is living a solitary life under the care of a motherly computer, but he wants to break free to lead adventures and do good in the world. Adventures ensue. So I'm looking forward to hearing a lot more about this one in the coming weeks. The art, uh, at least in the preview and on the site, looks really cool. I hope this is what the game's actually going to look like. And uh, like I said, I will, um, as I usually do, continue to uh, let you guys know more information about it as things come out next yet another kickstarter not directly related to a game so the guys from the now defunct retronauts podcast are trying to restart the show independent of their former home at oneop.com which is in the process of kind of winding down it's not quite offline yet but uh one up is soon to be gone uh, i was never a huge retronauts listener myself but if you like this show you'll likely really enjoy retronauts as well uh, they're also well beyond their initial goal of a mere $12,000 with 18 days remaining. If you're a fan of retro gaming in general, or Retronauts specifically, you should definitely go and check this one out. Next, in Leisure Suit Larry Reloaded news, uh, a recent backer update went out with to, uh, to the Kickstarter audience, stating that the game is, barring any quality assurance disasters, definitely releasing at the end of May so we'll be getting our new Larry game in less than two months. I'm excited to see what the replay games guys have put together. Next, some unfortunate King's Quest news has come to light just today. Uh, If you remember at the end of the King's Quest show a couple of episodes back, I mentioned that Telltale Games was working on a new sequel in the franchise. Well, Joystick is reporting that this is no longer the case. Steve Allison, Senior VP of Publishing at Telltale, has confirmed that they are no longer actively developing anything in the King's Quest universe. That's, that's really too bad, as you know, I'm sure another King's Quest game would have done quite well. For more information, I will link that Joystick article in the show notes. Finally, some more bad news. Actually, very bad news, I would say, especially... In light of last week's show, which reminded me how awesome X-Wing is, earlier today, Disney announced that they are closing down LucasArts. Here's the official text of the announcement. After evaluating our position in the games market, we've decided to shift LucasArts from an internal development to a licensing model, minimizing the company's risk while achieving a broader portfolio of quality Star Wars games. As a result of this change, we've had layoffs across the organization, We are incredibly appreciative and proud of the talented teams who have been developing our new titles. I'm incredibly saddened by this news, frankly. Uh, If you've been listening to the show, you know I'm a huge LucasArts fan. Uh, We don't have much more info aside from this right now. Um, I'll be interested to know what's going to happen with LucasArts titles on Steam and GOG and uh, how things are going to work going forward. As much as the licensing model does make sense... All the great history of, of LucasArts games, especially from the time period that I cover, just really makes this news suck. As more information becomes available, I will, of course, let everyone know. We have a pretty lively discussion uh, about this news going on over at the Facebook group, so if you guys have anything to say, head on over there, post some stuff. Um, yeah, I was, uh, I was pretty floored by this announcement. I know uh, I followed Tim Schaefer and Ron Gilbert on... Uh, On Twitter, and, um, you know, they were both a little bit uh, upset by the news, and like I said, you know, from a numbers point of view, it makes perfect sense. Uh, LucasArts hasn't really been putting out the best stuff as of late. Uh, The last good game, I guess I would say, they put out is uh, is, uh, Force Unleashed. Force Unleashed 2 wasn't all that great. The Old Republic had LucasArts written on it, but it was really a Bioware title. So, yeah, it makes sense. It just sucks. So, I guess, that's that.
2: You are listening to the Upper Podcast.
0: Okay, as we usually do before we get to the main topic, let's uh, talk about some emails that we got this week. Uh, Father Beast left a great comment on UMBCast.com talking a bit about X-Wing from the last episode. He writes, X-Wing is a favorite game of mine, also, and I wanted to play it before sending you some mail about it in advance, but I couldn't get mine working. More on that in a minute. My first exposure to X-Wing was when I was a garbage collector. I saw that someone had thrown their copy in the trash. I rescued it and brought it home. When trying to install, I discovered that there was damage to some of the floppy disks, and I kept getting errors while installing. I just kept pressing ignore and hoping for the best. What I got worked somewhat. As in, if you chose some options, it would crash. But I did get to fly the maze, enough to realize that it would go much better if I had a joystick. Within a few months, I saw our local Babbage's had a special X-Wing CD-ROM version, TIE Fighter CD-ROM, and X-Wing vs. TIE Fighter Flight School for a low $30 for the collection. It took a few weeks, but my wife finally approved the expense, as well as buying a cheap joystick since the CD-ROM version wouldn't let me play with a mouse. I never regretted that purchase. Even though I was a lousy flyer, Ultimately, the only completion I got was for qualifying on the maze with an A-Wing, the fastest of the ships. I also completed a few of the historical missions and failed quite a few more. While it was difficult, I actually appreciated the difficulty. I would fail at some historical mission, and then go back to the training grounds for a while, and then go and be successful at completing that mission. This wasn't because I had learned the tricks for that particular mission, but because I was actually becoming a better flyer. I never played much TIE Fighter because I felt I hadn't plumbed X-Wing sufficiently and so never played any of the others, X-Wing Alliance, or Rogue Squadron, or I don't know what else. X-Wing is one of my five Desert Island games since I figure being shipwrecked is the only way I would have enough time to become a good pilot. When you announced the coming of an X-Wing episode, I went and got my CD-ROMs and the old joystick from a corner of the storeroom, intending to install it on my Win XP laptop. I quickly discovered that there was no place to plug in the joystick, it had been plugged into the old Win98 machine in the corner of the storeroom, but we had cannibalized the keyboard and monitor from that machine to replace breakdowns elsewhere in the house, and none of our other computers had a game port. So, while I'm still working on it, I haven't played—I haven't as yet played in the last five years. To console myself, I downloaded the free Battle of Gavin and Battle of Endor from uh, www.bruneras.com. I'll link that in the show notes. These are in no way space sims, more like arcade games, but... They are fun. Thanks for that great email, Father Beast. Um yeah, you know it's 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 funny because you can try and keep peripherals and all these things, even if they're, you know, it's the best joystick you ever had and uh and all that. If it's the old kind of game port MIDI output type connector, well, frankly, uh, you know, any machine that really came out in the past, I'd even argue at this point almost ten years, doesn't uh doesn't have one of those anymore. I'm confident that if you really tried hard, you could find uh, maybe a USB to game port adapter or something like that. But frankly, you know, just to play X-Wing, it's probably not really worthwhile. And, you know, the same thing can be said of, of movies. Like my dad still has, I think my parents just moved out of their house into a condo and my dad finally got rid of his old Betamax tapes. <laughs> and he still has a VHS uh, a VHS player plugged into his uh, his 50 some odd inch LED HD TV and uh, he still will watch VHSs on it even though they look awful and horrible but uh, yeah it's just uh, I guess that that's that's the evolution that's progress and uh, you know it looks like USB has been a standard for quite a while now and uh, maybe going forward that's gonna kind of be what we use everything will be backwards compatible and we'll just keep you know using the same connector and uh, maybe that way the uh the joystick I have today will work in uh in ten or twenty years when I want to play an old game or my mouse that we don't use anymore in twenty years will work when I want to play Skyrim or something. But uh but yeah that's so true. It's it's interesting when you think about it that you know you had these peripherals that you used to play things and frankly they just don't work anymore. They or it's not even that they don't work. You can't connect them to your computer. Next an email from Colin. He writes, Hi Joe. Looking forward to another great show. Like last time, I don't really have any Fallout experience, but since this is your anniversary show, I wanted to tell you the somewhat unique way I discovered your podcast, and retro gaming in general. I'm currently 20, and most of the time growing up, that is from around ages 8 to 16, my family didn't have a home computer, so I never really was a good computer gamer until fairly recently. When I finally did get a PC... One of the first things I did was attempt to play some some of the humongous games I played as a kid on computers at the high school that my dad taught at. However, I quickly ran into a few problems getting these games to run well, or even at all. All As all great pursuers of knowledge do, I turned to Google for a solution. This quickly led me to discovering the wonderful piece of software known as ScumVM. While happy at finding the solution, it also took me aback a bit to see just how many games this thing supported, By trying to see where I could buy some of these games, I stumbled upon GOG.com, and my eyes were open to just how many great games the past held. Ever since then, I've actually found myself spending less and less time with game consoles and more on the computer, playing mostly older games. Despite the simple fact that my computer can't handle most new games, I find myself playing older games mostly due to their charm. There's something intangible about these classics that no amount of anti-aliasing or huge aspect ratios can replace. I always try and find more games that fit my interests to play, which is what led me to your podcast. Even though I'm often younger than the games you talk about, I always look forward to wasting time between college courses hearing about a fun and often unique game of yore. I find it especially fun to listen to your thoughts on a game I've already played and loved, like Gabriel Knight, The Incredible Machine, and Sam and Max. So here's to the start of the second of, I hope, many more years of the upper memory block. P.S. Have you ever played the Broken Sword games? They seem like they would make an excellent subject for the show. PBS, I didn't mean for this to be as long as it was. Feel free to paraphrase or not even read it on the podcast. Well, there will be no paraphrasing, and it will be read on the podcast. I actually have not uh, played the Broken Sword games, but uh, those are, as I, <laughs> I always say, on the list. Uh, I, I know they, they definitely would fit, um, fit in with the show. And I think, actually, Broken Sword comes uh, bundled with... Um, oh, what's it called? There's a front-end I use for DOSBox... To make my life a little bit easier, and Broken Sword, I believe, comes with it. So I will definitely uh, put that on the list for uh, for some future episode. And thank you, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, as I said at the beginning of the show, I'm, I'm glad that people like the show and they listen. And that is actually interesting. That you know, being that the games that I talk about tend to be older than you actually are. Um, you know, I'll say you're actually a lot more curious than I was at the time. I didn't play a ton of games from. You know, like when I was 13, 14, 20 years old, I I didn't go back and play, you know, I really only started gaming, let's say, 1988, 1989, kind of that thing. So I didn't go back until much later to play things like the original uh, King's Quest from, I believe it was 86. And I didn't go back to play other things like I played Elite much, much later after I played Wing Commander Privateer. And stuff like that. So, you know, it, it is interesting that that you were provided with this opportunity to go back and, and find older games. And, and you got into them and you saw, you know, what they had to offer. And, you know, what they had to offer wasn't necessarily this incredible, vibrant 1080p experience with incredible graphics. But, you know, they, they had to work with what they had to work with. They had limited graphics and more effort maybe would have put on mechanics. More effort was maybe put on stories or maybe it was just kind of the trends at the time were were different and it did give these older games a little bit of uh of a charm so again thank you i i do plan to be around for as many years as uh i have content to cover and i don't plan on going away anytime soon so finally we have a short voicemail from paul
3: hi joe this is paul i just wanted to uh, leave you a voicemail to say thank you for Supporting death Inc by your podcast it was very good of you, and I know the guys at ambient studio appreciated everyone who went over to the kickstarter so thanks again for supporting independent games
0: well thank you paul and and you know no problem and you know a lot of the kickstarters that I do feature on the show are are actually pointed out to me by by listeners i know you you pointed out death Inc you've pointed out others in the past I know paul's a little bit special because he has uh some relationships with uh, with the people who are working on Death Inc. and in you know that kind of group and in the UK uh, gaming scene, let's say. As uh, I believe, Paul, you were actually the one that pointed out that movie project that I uh, that I talked about at the top of the show. And yeah, you know, as I said, I'm not. It's it's interesting that that this show and the whole Kickstarter thing happened all at once. And I feel I do focus on them because they do tend to have to do directly with games that i talk about and it's just this incredible renaissance of of classic gaming and i guess kind of like you know the the big names and the heroes of in game development from back in those days are, are all back on the scene now you know they've, they've come out of the woodwork they've come out of the cracks some of them are still big names some of them have gone on to other things some of them have taken a break some of them just kept doing what they're doing and um it's just great to see them back. It's great to see references back. You know, not like this week. Fine, Fallout has, has continued on and has recent games, but other things haven't. And it's just so wonderful to see them coming back. So so for Paul, for anyone else around, you know, if there's a if there's a project, be it on Kickstarter or Indiegogo, or if it's independent, or if there's just something on Xbox Live Arcade that, you know, you think is, is interesting, you think is relevant, then post it on a Facebook group, send me an email, tell it to me on Twitter and i i will feature it on the show i figure the more publicity we can get for these reloaded games if you want to call them that uh the the better it is for everyone you're listening to the
4: upper memory block podcast time for
0: so now that we're 20 minutes in on to the main topic of the show i spent a little bit of, of time there a lot of stuff happened uh Frankly, a lot of stuff happened today. It wasn't even this week or in the past two weeks. The big news was all from today. Uh, but anyways, on to the main topic, the Fallout series. Fallout is a series of, I guess, four to six games, depending on how you count them. The first two games, which is what I'll be focusing on mostly, were developed by both Interplay and Black Isle Studios, which are both technically Interplay, and they were both published by Interplay. We'll get into the whole Black Isle thing a little bit later. But... Uh, The first game in the series, known simply as Fallout, came out in the year 1997. So this is kind of a little bit before there was still kind of the tail end of the DOS era. Uh, Windows, obviously Windows 95 wasn't out, that's just silly. So anyways, tail end of the DOS era, 1997. So as we usually do, let's talk about the genre. I'm amazed, once again, that I've been doing this show an entire year, and I haven't yet covered this huge genre. Fallout is a computer role-playing game, or CRPG, or just RPG. In a role-playing game, you, as the player, control the actions of a protagonist who exists in a relatively rich and fleshed-out world. You are generally tasked early on in the game with a mission or a quest. This quest is generally quite important to either the player's character character, their associated group, like their village, or their country, or their whatever, or the world as a whole. As the player progresses through their main quest, they will be presented with a myriad of sub-quests, which must be completed to progress in their main quest, in addition to numerous side quests, which may have nothing at all to do with the main quest. Quests range from retrieval or crafting of items, clearing an area of enemies, defeating a specific enemy, courier missions, and basically any other action that can be performed for another entity. That doesn't have to be military, it doesn't have to be anything like that. Basically, if there's something that you can do for someone else in the game, that's a quest. Completion of quests result in some form of reward, be it financial, material, or something less tangible, such as reputation or renown. In addition to material or reputation rewards, the vast majority of role playing games also reward players with some form of experience points. These points are used to increase the skills and abilities of a player's character. As we can see, much of the terminology, experience points, questing, blah, 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 other things like mechanics and processes of computer role playing games find their roots in pen and paper or tabletop role playing games like the ever popular Dungeons and Dragons. It's in this character development that we see the true standout feature of role-playing games over other genres such as uh, more straightforward adventure games. In an adventure game, you do many of the things I've outlined thus far. You complete one or many quests, you solve puzzles, you collect items, and all the rest. However, you are not role-playing. You are simply controlling the movements and general actions of your character. That character has a predefined set of skills, abilities, and attitudes. In a role-playing game, you truly take ownership of your character within the bounds of the world. While most characters start off with somewhat similar skill sets, many role-playing games offer you huge latitude in applying those points to whatever skills you'd like. This can be a blessing and a curse, though, as it is quite possible to invest in less-than-useful skills, let's say, or skills which don't complement your play style. So you can build a character that you love. You can also build a character that you hate if you want to play a character that's smart and strong you can do that if you want to play a character that's mean you can do that i mean it's there's a lot of latitude here to play your character your way uh, there's much much more i can say on rpgs in general but i guess it's probably time to get to specifics and start talking about fallout itself more tropes of the genre will definitely reveal themselves as we go forward So on to the story of Fallout. On the surface, the story of Fallout's very straightforward. However, it exists in a very deep and very complex world. The easiest way to give you the background of that world is to simply play the game's
5: intro. War. War never changes. The Romans waged war to gather slaves and wealth. Spain built an empire from its lust for gold and territory. Hitler shaped a battered Germany into an economic superpower. But war never changes. In the 21st century, war was still waged over the resources that could be acquired. Only this time, the spoils of war were also its weapons. Petroleum and uranium. For these resources, China would invade Alaska the US would annex Canada, and the European Commonwealth would dissolve into quarreling, bickering nation-states bent on controlling the last remaining resources on Earth. In 2077, the storm of World War had come again. In two brief hours, most of the planet was reduced to cinders, and from the ashes of nuclear devastation, a new civilization would struggle to arise. A few were able to reach the relative safety of the large underground vaults. Your family was part of that group that entered Vault 13. Imprisoned safely behind the large vault door under a mountain of stone, a generation has lived without knowledge of the outside world. Life in the vault is about to change.
0: So, as we can see, we are set at a post-apocalyptic world which followed a nuclear war that occurred on October October 23rd, 2077. What's interesting to note, however, is that while this is the planet Earth, the Fallout universe is set on an alternate timeline from our own. The two timelines were identical up until about 1945. From here, technology diverged. Our timeline took the course we're aware of, whereas Fallout's timeline Uh, the technology took a more kind of retro 50s direction. Uh, For example, in 1947, the transistor was not discovered. This meant that most technology could not be miniaturized. Also, sometime before 1969, in an attempt to mitigate the influence of communism, the United States adopted a system of 13 commonwealths, kind of a middle layer of government between the federal and the state. It was hoped that these commonwealths could address regional concerns of local groupings of states. This didn't really happen, and the Commonwealths created more of a political strife kind of situation by continuously competing with each other. Despite all this strife, no major conflicts are really fought until about the year 2050. Around this time, the Middle Eastern nations begin drastically raising oil prices, which places many smaller European nations in economic danger. The European Commonwealth responds with military force starting the resource wars. Tel Aviv is destroyed by a nuclear device, and other nuclear weapons fire is exchanged in the Middle East. This prompts the Americans to begin Project Safe House, building a series of underground vaults designated or designed to protect their occupants from nuclear attacks. In 2059, oil resources become increasingly scarce. The US militarizes the Alaska-Canada border to protect Alaskan oil resources. This puts a strain on Canada-U.S. relations. In 2060, the Mideast oil fields finally run dry. With no more external source of oil, the European Commonwealth countries begin fighting amongst themselves for the remaining resource stores. Oil and other fossil fuels become too expensive for everyday use. Alternative fuels and advancements in nuclear technology slowly start to integrate themselves into consumer-level products. So instead of having a gas-powered car, you might have a nuclear-powered car. By 2066, China's oil reserves are also nearly depleted and their economy is in ruins. This results in a Chinese invasion of the Alaskan oil fields. The U.S. strong arms Canada into allowing U.S. troops to cross their borders. This begins the slow annexation of Canada by the U.S. 10 years later, by 2076, this annexation is complete. The U.S. owns Canada. By 2077, The Americans reclaim Alaska from the Chinese, but they don't sign an armistice, they don't end the conflict. The president and his cabinet flee to the Poseidon oil rig. However, the war-weary U.S. population doesn't heed the warnings. Many vaults are underpopulated as the bombs fall and their doors are closed. The Great War, as it came to be known, effectively ended civilization as we know it. There's no real way to tell exactly how much damage was actually done, but the devastation was widespread. The biggest issue was the high levels of radiation pervading the biosphere. Most U.S. cities were bombed to ruin. The few surviving cities, such as Pittsburgh and Las Vegas, descended into anarchy as society broke down. Though the vaults were underpopulated and were never actually intended to save the whole population of the U.S., uh, within 10 years, some of them, such as Vault 8 and Vault 12, began to open. While those vaults each have their own stories, suffice it to say They maintained enough higher technology to kickstart a minor renaissance, regions formed around these vaults and this rediscovered technology. So this kind of small renaissance that I'm talking about took place in what is now known as the core region, covering most of California as well as parts of Nevada, Oregon, and northern Mexico. Though vaults 8 and 12 opened soon after the bombs fell, vault 13, the vault we find ourselves living in at the start of the game, is still sealed up tight. However, there's a little problem.
1: Ha, you're here, good. We've got a problem, a big one. The controller chip for our water purification system has given up the ghost. Can't make another one, and the process is too complicated for a workaround system. Simply put, we're running out of drinking water. No water, no vault. This is crucial to our survival. And frankly, I... I think you're the only hope we have. You need to go find us another controller chip. We estimate we have four to five months before the vault runs out of water. We need that chip. We marked your map with the location of another vault. Not a bad place to start, I think. Look, just be safe, okay?
0: So it's now 2161 and your vault, which was not scheduled to open for quite some time yet, has a water problem. You have 150 days of in-game time to find a replacement chip. You're given some bottle caps, which are used as currency outside the vault, a nine millimeter pistol, a knife, a few stimpaks for healing, and of course, a hallmark of the Fallout franchise, your handy dandy Pip-Boy 2000 for use in mapping, quest and sat tracking, and much more. It's kind of this very retro style portable, uh, portable computer with a green and black screen. It's pretty awesome. Uh, with this meager equipment and uh, wearing nothing but your simple yellow and blue vault jumpsuit, you're sent on your way. Without getting into too much detail, your journey takes you to a wide variety of places, including the, re- the Necropolis, the original site of Vault 12, where you do indeed find your water chip. As it turns out, this isn't the end of your problems. It's revealed to you that a mutant army is threatening humanity. The mutant's leader, simply known as the Master, has begun using a pre-war genetically engineered virus known as the Forced Evolutionary Virus, or FEV, to convert humanity into a race of super mutants and bring them together in the Unity, his vision for a perfect world. You may, of course, recognize a few quotes from the
1: Master in the intro and outro to the show. So what shall it be? Do you join the Unity, or do you die here? Join. Die. Join. Die. I don't have to prove anything to you. Prove. Very demanding for one in your... Tenuous. ...position... But I can respect your needs. The unity will bring about the master race. Master. Master! One able to survive or even thrive in the wasteland. As long as there are differences, we will tear ourselves apart fighting each other. We need one race. Race. Race! One goal. Goal! Goal! One people to move forward. To our destiny. Destiny. Of course.
2: Mutants are best equipped to deal with the world today.
1: Who else?
2: The ghouls!
1: Please. Normals! They brought nuclear death to us all. This will be the age of mutants. Mutants. All that... Resist! Yes. And all those that are required for the... Unity. As well. The remainder will be allowed to live out their days. But under... Unity control and protection.
0: Obviously, this isn't something we can let happen. You need to defeat both the master and destroy the super mutants military base where the virus is being stored. Once this is done, you return to the vault to resume your normal life. As it turns out though, your adventures have changed you too much and the Overseer feels you should go into exile into the Wasteland, as many young people in the Vault would want to follow in your example and leave to adventure themselves. In the canon ending, you depart the Vault for the good of its inhabitants and walk off into the desert. Now, I do say that that's the canon ending because, well, I did say that not going along with the Master isn't something we can let happen. You do have the option to let that happen. You can take the virus, you can become a super mutant, and you can kind of side with him, but that's not... Kind of the uh, the good ending, let's say.
2: You are listening to the Upper Henry Podcast.
0: On to the gameplay. So once you watch the intro, you're taken to the character creation screen. Right off the bat, you get to have some fun deciding who you will be and what skills you will have as you begin the game. The game offers you three character templates with predefined backstories. Max Stone is a big bruiser of lower intelligence. Natalia is quite intelligent and very agile. She's an ideal kind of thief type character. Finally, Albert is a very charismatic character with moderate intelligence. He'd be good to lead a party and talk his way through problems. You can choose one of these templates, but that's no fun. We want to make a character all our own. For that, we need to understand the underlying rules of Fallout's role-playing system. Fallout was originally intended to use the GURPS system, as uh, the base set of rules for gameplay. GURPS is an acronym that stands for Generic Universal Role Playing System. This system was created by Steve Jackson Games back in 1986. It uses a skill point based character system and all actions are handled via rolls of six sided dice. The generic universal part simply means the rule set was general enough to be easily adapted to any role playing game setting. Well, this system seemed ideal for the game Due to some reasons we'll get into in the dev story, the GURPS licensing never actually came to be. As a result, a custom role-playing system had to be developed. This led the dev team to create the SPECIAL system. Like GURPS, SPECIAL is an acronym. However, this acronym represents the main statistics inherent to the system. Strength, Perception, Endurance, Charisma, Intelligence, Agility, and Luck. Many of these stats are well known to anyone that has played a pen and paper or other computer roleplaying game. Strength obviously affects the amount of weight you can carry, how many hit points you have, and controls which weapons you can use effectively based on their minimum strength requirements. Perception affects your ability to notice things. This affects your initiative, that's whether you act before an enemy when entering combat. Uh, It may affect other secondary skills like first aid, and obviously affects your performance in ranged combat. Perception also helps you to notice things in conversation Which may open additional dialogue choices. Endurance directly affects your health that's your total hit points, health regeneration, additional hit points per level, and poison and radiation resistance. Charisma affects your interactions with NPCs that's non player characters, Uh, how many party members you can recruit at once, which dialogue options are available to you, and what prices you receive from vendors. Intelligence controls the number of new skill points you receive per level. Smarts based dialogue options like science or medical stuff, Uh, and many skills also have intelligence based requirements. Agility handles the number of action points you receive per turn, accuracy with all weapons types, and other kind of roguish abilities like lockpicking, stealing, and disarming traps. Finally, we have the most nebulous stat luck. Luck directly affects your gambling skill. Aside from that, Luck has some effect on the, I guess we can call them virtual dice that are rolled when many actions occur in the game, especially in combat. More luck means it's more likely that you'll achieve a critical hit, and or it's more likely that you'll roll higher, and you know other things to that effect. This is not really a direct correlation, but um, you know luck does certainly have some effect. So creating a new character gives us all seven of these stats set to a value of five or average. On top of this, you're provided with five additional stat points to spread around. You can drop any stat down to a minimum of one, or very bad, which will make you effectively useless in that uh, in that statistic, or you can raise them up to a maximum of ten, or excellent. You're also not required to use all your points. Fallout's actually a very well-balanced game. You can complete it with almost any grouping of stats, no matter how disjointed they may be. One grouping of stats may be more challenging than another, but you can generally get through with almost any setup. So on top of your primary stats, which I've already described, you can choose up to two optional stats. These are fun little quirks that make your character more unique. Uh, They generally provide you with a specific advantage, while handicapping you in kind of a corresponding way. For example, the one-hander trait gives you a great advantage with one-handed weapons. However, two-handed weapons receive an equal penalty. The night person trait gives you a bonus to perception at night, but a penalty to perception during the day. Finally, you have your skills. Skills are what you use to deal with specific situations in the game. They range from first aid, to skill with different weapon types, to the ability to use science and technology, finally to other things like sneaking by unsuspecting enemies or picking locks. The base percentages of your specific stats are dictated by your special skill levels and any optional traits you've selected. You also have the option to tag up to three skills giving them an immediate 20% boost, and also have them increase at a faster rate throughout the game. Finally, you provide your character with a name, set their age, and select their sex. This doesn't really have any bearing on anything. It's just more uh, from a role-playing perspective. How old do you want to be? What do you want your name to be? And do you want to be a man or a woman? We are now ready to roam the wasteland. as you leave the vault, you are quickly thrown into the gameplay mechanics. Looking around, you see a corpse beside you. Search it! This has become a hallmark of almost every role-playing game in existence. Loot everything you can. Looting this body yields you a stim pack, which is effectively a basic uh, healing potion, except, you know, from a technological angle, and uh, some armor-piercing 9mm ammo, and a combat knife. Looking and moving around, you see some rats are infesting the cave that you are in. Uh, They don't seem friendly so you should probably gear up for a fight. Opening your inventory, you see you have slots for both of your hands and a slot for armor. Well, you don't have armor right now, but you do have two knives and a nine mm pistol. Equipping them now will save you the action points required to do it once you've entered combat. Exploration, movement, and non-combat interactions in Fallout all occur in real time. Once you enter combat, however, Fallout switches to turn-based mode. All actions in combat are governed by your number of action points. Both the number of points you have and the cost of those actions are modified by your character's statistics or your special stats. Most weapons have more than one attack type. For example, knives have thrust and swing options, automatic weapons will have semi-auto and full auto modes, or sorry, semi-auto and burst modes, Uh, and all modes both have a normal fire and a targeted fire mode. The targeted mode generally costs at least one more action point than the non-targeted mode targeted mode allows you to hit specific body parts. Uh, Hit percentages are different for each body part. Hitting the eyes or the head is generally more difficult than hitting the torso or the limbs. Critically hitting a body part may cripple the target in some beneficial way. If you cripple a leg, they may not move. They may lose points for movement. Uh, If you cripple their eyes, their accuracy goes down. Head crits will do more damage, things like that. So you enter combat with the rats since you're just starting out, this can actually be a challenge. This is especially true if you're being cheap with your 9mm pistol ammo and try to kill the rats with the knife alone. Eventually, though, if you're successful, you will clear the rats and exit the cave. This brings us to the world map. Here you can wander aimlessly or go to a predetermined list of potential landmarks. Right now, the only destination you have is that of Vault 15, the first place you've been told to look for the water chip. Clicking on it, you start to travel across the map. On the map, you'll notice there's a calendar and that the date is scrolling by much quicker than uh, you'd think it would be otherwise. This is also the time of the dreaded random encounters. In your travels, you may randomly come across enemies. You can stand and fight them for potential rewards, or you can just run away. This early in the game, I usually run because I usually get killed very quickly. About halfway through your journey to Vault 15, you come across a settlement. Well, why not stop in? Turns out this is Shady Sands, a peaceful settlement created by a group that left Vault 15. It turns out they have a rad scorpion problem, and they also have a gang problem. Why not help them? So this is the way the game goes. You come to a quest hub, you gather quests, and you run them for rewards if you so desire. Eventually you'll gain a level. Leveling up provides you with more points to add to your skills. Every three levels, you also gain access to what is known as a perk. Perks are purely beneficial character traits, which allow you to do things like heal wounds faster, gain more skill points per level, or perform more actions per round. There's a lot more I could say about gameplay. You can get poisoned by either venoms, poisons, or radiation. You can talk and barter with NPCs for quests and equipment, and uh, you know your actions do have ramifications in the world. In addition to XP for completing tasks, you also receive karma points, for which actions you perform and the manner in which you perform them. Kill indiscriminately, lie, steal, well you'll get negative karma and NPCs will see you as kind of a generally bad person. Do things the right way and people might be friendlier to you. You can improve your skills by reading books or undergoing rituals and they can be temporarily improved with drugs. I mean there's there's so much here, Fallout's really quite a deep game and I've I've really only scratched the surface. It's just something you got to experience.
4: You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for...
0: So here we are at the tech focus. Fallout had the following minimum PC system requirements. It required a Pentium 90 megahertz, 16 megabytes of RAM, 80 megabytes of hard drive space, and DOS 5.0. Now, DOS 5 is actually an interesting point because I believe up until this point, the the general minimum DOS version was DOS 3.1 something or other. So having it required DOS 5 was actually a pretty interesting requirement. So on top of the DOS requirement, uh, it finally it had needed a graphics array that was capable of SVGA at 256 colors. I believe the options for resolutions ranged from 640 by 480 all the way up to 1024 by 768 Fallout's graphics were great looking for the time. It used a 3 quarter isometric view similar to that of other games we've already seen such as XCOM. Uh, the view did not rotate. What you saw was what you got. On entering buildings, the roof would cut away allowing you to see inside. Also, while the game sprites weren't particularly large, they were quite detailed. When your character changed weapon types, he or she would be rendered carrying that class of weapon. The same went for armor. For this reason, like in Diablo, that came out the year before, upgrading your gear didn't only improve your stats, it also made your avatar look cool, so there was a motivation to get better gear, change out your gear, try different guns, because you wanted to see what you looked like. In addition to great looking in-game graphics, the cutscenes in Fallout also looked great. From the intro sequence, to NPC interactions, to the ending, the game used high-quality pre-rendered 3D models which were mind-blowingly great looking for the time. Finally, the music of Fallout is a huge component to the game world. The music is appropriately eerie, benefiting the lonely, blasted world we find ourselves in. The retro-style technology is captured by the theme song, Maybe by the 1930s Indianapolis vocal group The Ink Spots. The rest of the soundtrack was composed by talented musician and composer Mark Morgan. After working with acts the likes of Starship and Chaka Khan, Morgan was led to producing and composing. After some good work in television, Mark decided to attack the burgeoning world of video games. Here he found his niche. His aggressive ambient style suited gaming quite well. Well, he scored many games. Fallout and Planescape Torment are regarded by him as his standout performances. Mark's Fallout soundtrack stood the test of time so well that many tracks were reused in the 2010 release of Fallout New Vegas by Bethesda, but you know, we'll, we'll get to that one soon
1: enough.
4: You're listening to the upper memory block podcast time for
0: dev story time fallout is the brainchild of tim kane unlike many of the game producers we've talked about tim did the academic thing he completed a bachelor of science in computer engineering at the university of virginia during this time he helped a friend program a card game named Grand Slam Bridge for the Cybon Corporation, I believe it was. The game was later released by EA in 1986. Despite this experience, Tim wasn't breaking into the games industry quite yet. He proceeded to work on and receive a master's degree in computer science in 1989 from UC Berkeley, Irvine. After he received his master's degree, he soon began doing freelance work for Interplay, now, he worked on the Bard's Tale construction set, and by the time the game released in 1991, he'd converted from a contract freelancer to full time Interplay staff developer. We then come to 1994. Tim had worked on a few more projects for Interplay. In 1994, though, he was put on a new project. It was to be a role playing game based on the GURPS rule set. Initially, he wasn't running the show. He was the only employee on the project under veteran producer Thomas R. Decker. Since Decker was overseeing quite a few projects at the same time, he quickly dropped out and Kane went from lead programmer right up to game producer. This show was his to run. So, as I mentioned in the gameplay section, Fallout was originally intended to use the GURPS rule set. This was so certain that for most of the development time, uh, the title for the game was Vault 13, a GURPS post-nuclear adventure. Despite the certainty that the game would use the system, Steve Jackson, the creator of GURPS, was pretty unresponsive until Interplay offered licensing money right up front, so he wasn't really jumping at the chance to have a, a computer game using his, his role-playing system. Legend has it that the first draft of the story was written during a night of many beers. The draft bared very little resemblance to the final Fallout universe, Uh, At this point, the team was really still casting about for a direction. Eventually, though, the team decided they wanted to do their own version of Wasteland. Wasteland was a post-apocalyptic game that Interplay had previously released in 1988. Well, unfortunately, that wasn't to be. Despite the fact that Interplay had created the game, EA currently held the publishing rights due to some kind of 10th anniversary collection that uh, they were publishing for Interplay. So they couldn't use the Wasteland name, even though they worked for the company that created it, Uh, but the post-apocalyptic theme was free for them to use. As the story developed, Tim came up with the idea of the vaults. This idea really solidified the creative process and really gave them a direction to go in. From the basis of, of these ideas, the team created five rules that they would use to design the game. Rule number one, multiple decisions. We will always allow for multiple solutions to any obstacle. Rule number two, no useless skills. The skills we allow you to take will have meaning in the game. Rule number three, dark humor was good, slapstick was not. Rule number four, let the player play how he wants to play. And rule number five, your actions have repercussions. This game was going to be mature and dark. They weren't going to shy away from violence, language, or sex. For early 1995, which was about the time we were at in the development process, this was a big risk. Development continued with a lot of interaction from Steve Jackson games. Jackson himself, or reps from his company, had to approve everything. By 1997, they had settled on everything except for the look of the animated Vault Boy character that you see throughout the game, especially in the intro sequence. This point of contention is what... Is, uh, is attributed to causing Steve Jackson games and interplay to part ways. Not really sure if I believe that was the only issue, but that's what my research revealed. Being that this was quite far into the development process, the loss of the GURPS licensing was, was a bit of an issue. They didn't have a core rule set to build the role-playing elements of the game on. Well, they rolled back to their five basic rules and quickly came up with the special stat system. It was based fairly heavily on GURPS but with enough differences to avoid any legal issues with Steve Jackson games. Now, it may have been based on it, but it wasn't just a copy of GURPS, and uh, being that it's been maintained through all the subsequent Fallout games, I think they did a pretty good job coming up with a pretty robust system. To test out the rule set, the dev team actually had regular game nights where they'd play a tabletop version of Fallout's rules. That tradition carried on past the game's release. In addition to this great role-playing system and the cool graphics and sound we talked about in Tech Focus, Interplay also went all out with the game's voice acting. The first lines of the intro, "War. War never changes," are read by none other than Ron Perlman. Those lines became tradition for the series. Each follow-on game starts with the line, always narrated by Perlman. In addition to Ron, the game featured the voices of Richard Dean Anderson, David Warner, Tony Shaloub, and Richard Maul. This was truly an all-star cast. So, like many of the games we talk about here, Fallout released later in 1997 to rave reviews. It won many awards that year and continues to this day to make best PC game of all time lists year after year. One year later in 1998, we find ourselves with Fallout 2. This game was developed by Interplay's Black Isle Studios division. It used the same engine as the original game And didn't really add many new gameplay features.
5: War. War never changes. The end of the world occurred pretty much as we had predicted. Too many humans, not enough space or resources to go around. The details are trivial and pointless. The reasons, as always, purely human ones. The Earth was nearly wiped clean of life, a great cleansing. An atomic spark struck by human hands quickly raged out of control. Spears of nuclear fire rained from the skies. Continents were swallowed in flames and fell beneath the boiling oceans. Humanity was almost extinguished, their spirits becoming part of the background radiation that blanketed the Earth. A quiet darkness fell across the planet, lasting many years. Few survived the devastation. Some had been fortunate enough to reach safety, taking shelter in great underground vaults. When the great darkness passed, these vaults opened and their inhabitants emerged to begin their lives again. One of the Northern tribes claims they are descended from one such vault. They hold that their founder and ancestor, one known as the Vault Dweller, once saved the world from a great evil. According to their legend, This evil arose in the far south. It corrupted all it touched, twisting men inside, turning them into beasts. Only through the bravery of this vault dweller was the evil destroyed. But in so doing, he lost many of his friends and suffered greatly, sacrificing much of himself to save the world. When at last he returned to the home he had fought so hard to protect, he was cast out. Exiled. In confronting that which they feared, he had become something else in their eyes and no longer their champion. Forsaken by his people, he strode into the wasteland. He traveled far to the north until he came to the great canyons. There he founded a small village, Arroyo, where he lived out the rest of his years. And so for a generation since its founding, Arroyo has lived in peace It's canyons sheltering it from the outside world. It is home. Your home. But the scars left by the war have not yet healed. And the Earth has not forgotten.
0: So Fallout 2 takes place 80 years after the first game. You are a descendant of the Vault Dweller tasked to save your dying village by finding a mythical piece of technology known as the Garden of Eden Creation Kit, or the GECK. This kit can create a thriving, fertile environment out of the wasteland. This is just the beginning of a much larger adventure which takes you back to Vault 13 and then into conflict with the Enclave, who we find out is composed of the remnants of the original pre-war US government. Fallout 2 featured a much wider variety of items, weaponry, and enemies, making combat much more challenging. Fans were kind of divided on Fallout 2 though, It was more of what they loved from a mechanics perspective, however this game was a little bit sillier and quirkier than the original with many, many pop culture references. Some players thought it lacked the serious dark tones of the first game. Others loved the game because it gave them a much larger world to explore in the way that they enjoyed in the first game. So that brings us to Fallout 3, or at least the Fallout 3 that never was, codenamed Van Buren. So Van Buren was the codename for the cancelled version of Fallout 3, developed by Black Isle Studios, and which was to be published by Interplay. Uh, it featured an improved engine with real 3D graphics as opposed to the 2D sprites, which we'd been seeing in the first two, uh, new locations, vehicles, and a modified version of the special system. The game was cancelled in December 2003 when budget cuts forced Interplay to dismiss the PC development team. Interplay subsequently sold the Fallout intellectual property to Bethesda Softworks, who began development on their own version of Fallout 3. Van Buren is considered to be part of the main Fallout series, however it is considered to be kind of more semi-canon, being that it was unreleased. Some parts of the game were incorporated into Fallout 3 and its add-ons, as well as Fallout New Vegas. So that was 2003, a bit of a break while Bethesda kind of got their ducks in order, and in 2008, we have Bethesda's release of the actual Fallout 3 that we know and love. Fallout 3 takes place 20 years after Fallout 2 in the capital wasteland, which really consists of the area around Washington, D.C. Fallout 3 features a full 3D first-person environment with the ability to engage in real-time combat or to pause the action for more traditional targeted attacks. Bethesda did the series proud while still making a unique game that stands apart from the previous two. Two years later, in 2010, we have the release of the latest game in the series, Fallout New Vegas. New Vegas is actually more closely related to Fallout 1 and 2, taking place in the Mojave wasteland outside of Las Vegas, one of the few remaining undestroyed cities in the United States. This game starts with your character, a lone courier, being double-crossed, shot, and left for dead. New Vegas was not quite as well-received as Fallout 3 was, like Fallout 2 being kind of the sequel to the groundbreaking game, it doesn't add much additional gameplay over Fallout 3, and it actually also did release with quite a few bugs. So that's kind of where we stand right now on Fallout. So what does the future hold? Well, being that Bethesda owns the license, and, you know, they're still going strong, I think we can be pretty confident that another game is coming soon enough. Execs from Bethesda hinted another game might be in the works, and uh, as has one of the voice actors from Fallout 3. These hints are as recent as actually January of 2013. Uh, Rumor is that the new game may take place around Massachusetts. Then again, we may be returning to the Mojave Wasteland of New Vegas. For the moment, we, we don't know. I'd be shocked if nothing else came out about that. And as usual, as new news develops, I will keep you informed. So where can we get Fallout today? Well, lots of places. Fallout 1, 2, and Fallout Tactics, which I didn't really uh, talk about very much. It's kind of a more combat-focused side side series. Uh, They're all available on GOG.com for $9.99 each. All the games, except for Tactics, are also available on Steam. This includes the newer Fallout 3 and Fallout New Vegas. And the last two, 3, and New Vegas are, of course, also available for your console of choice. Well... All of them except the Wii, but you know, the Xbox three sixty, PlayStation three, you can get your hands on Fallout New Vegas and Fallout Three.
2: Ah, the Upper Memory
0: Podcast, one of the best podcasts around about geeky old-style gaming on computers. Well, we talk about old stuff as well. We talk about old classic television programs and films from around the world. So if that's your cup of tea or coffee, then why don't you listen to us? We're called Waffle On Podcast, and you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or at our main site, which is waffleon.podbean.com. We would be honoured if you'd join us. So like we do when all the talk and analysis is done, we have to ask the question, is Fallout still fun? Interestingly, I thought I had my mind made up on this before I even played this time around. While I have fond memories of playing Fallout and Fallout 2 when they were originally released, I remember these games as being frustratingly hard and frustratingly unforgiving. Say the wrong thing to the wrong person and boom, you're dead. Fight the wrong creature with the wrong weapon and boom, you're dead. I replayed these games about five years ago when I first discovered DOSBox, and I remember not even being able to get out of the first cave. The freaking rats killed me. I also remember lots and lots of reading, and well, that was normal for the time. These days, I wasn't sure if I'd have the patience to read through pages and pages of dialogue through a very long game. Based on my old memories and my more recent playthrough five years ago, I was convinced I'd be giving at least the first two games in the series it, you know, one of those, it may be iconic, but it's not fun anymore. Well, either I changed, or I was on crack when I played these games before. Fallout is fun! Unless you really spec into melee weapons, just use a gun and you can kill things pretty easily. Save often, and you'll never be in too much trouble. The combat can be tough, but this game has such a deep and detailed world to offer. I love the retro style of the technology and the small pop culture references around the first game, and frankly I enjoy the more overt pop culture references in the second game. Fallout is fun and quirky and somehow both takes itself very seriously and pokes fun at itself at the same time. Going into the newer games, Fallout 3 is one of my top Xbox 360 titles, and while I haven't finished New Vegas yet, it is a lot of fun, I gotta go back and and get through that. I know a lot of us have played these last two iterations of the universe, if you haven't gone back to see where it all began, I strongly suggest you do. Fallout 1 and 2 are certainly less action-oriented than the later Bethesda games, but they are just as fun, entertaining, and long.
4: Hi, this is Rick Moyer.
3: And this is Amy Moyer. And we are the hosts of Take Him With You. The
4: weekly podcast where we discuss life at the geeky Moyer's home, and then we talk about our faith and how it relates to the world around us. Very, very positive podcast, and we think you really enjoy it. And I love Star Trek and heavy metal music.
3: And I like Star Trek. And heavy metal music. And I hate heavy metal music.
4: (laughs) Hate is a strong word.
3: Well, you got to understand, when you're recording... Give in to
4: your
2: hate, Amy.
3: When you're recording, and you go over and over those loud, obnoxious riffs, you know, I Mm -hmm. do not like the loud guitar. You're talking about the Perry songs that I do. Some of them I like.
4: Give in to your hate.
3: You've done some big band songs and some soft songs that I've liked.
4: Yeah, well anyway.
3: Yeah, I just don't really like the heavy metal.
4: Want to hear more of our banter? You can by listening to our podcast. Where can they find it?
3: You can find it at TakeHimWithYou.com or iTunes.
4: That's right. iTunes. Yes. So
3: you can t- tune in and but I do like some sci-fi Amy,
4: I'm your husband. <sighs> uh,
3: I like Star Trek and I like like Babylon 5 and Make it so some different questions. Sci-fi. We're going too
4: long now. That's go okay. away.
2: You don't know the power of the podcast. Take it with you.
4: That was kinda like Darth Vader. <laughs>
0: So that's it for another show. Thanks to everyone who emailed in. I love the content you guys keep sending, so keep it coming. The more, the better. It's so much more interesting when when you know I have other people's opinions on things and all that. So next week, I'm heading back to Origin Systems and Chris Roberts. No, I'm not doing another Wing Commander show. Next time, I will be talking Strike Commander. I really, really remember a lot about this game, and I'm excited to play it again to see if uh, if it holds up. So as always, send your email or your audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com, especially with all the news this week. If you have any opinions on the LucasArts situation, on the King's Quest situation, on Strike Commander, on Fallout, on X-Wing, on anything we've talked about, on any stories you got, anything like that, drop me an email. I want to hear it. Thanks to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find him over at moyermultimedia.com. Check out the show notes at umbcast.com. You can join the Facebook group where we do a lot of talking. Today's been a pretty crazy day for uh, for the Facebook group. Uh, you can find that at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. You follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow and me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. I'm a lot more active on my personal account than the show account. That one's really more for... Uh, announcements and stuff but either one you want to send me something send it to me you could subscribe to the show on itunes or stream us live at stitcher radio you can also drop some reviews there some thumbs ups or whatever it is they have anywhere the more reviews i get the better it is so that's that and we will see you next time for strike commander here in the upper memory block
2: Of me, when you are all, alone. maybe the one who is waiting for you will prove untrue. Then what will you? Maybe you'll sit and sigh, wishing that I were near then Maybe you'll ask me to come back again, and maybe. I'll say maybe, maybe you'll think of me when you are all alone.
5: Control terminated.
4: You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastrianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com.
1: So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here?
2: Join.